Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nick C., one of the hosts of the channel, and today we'll be talking with Dr. David Brophy about his translation of Muhammad Sadiq Kashkari's In Remembrance of the Saints, The Rise and Fall of an Inner Asian Sufi Dynasty. That was published in 2021 by Columbia University Press. Dr. Brophy is a senior lecturer in modern Chinese history in the Department of History at the University of Sydney where he teaches courses in modern China, modern Russia, and Central Asia. He holds a PhD in Inter-Asian and Altaic Studies from Harvard University. In his first book, Uyghur Nation, Reform and Revolution on the Russia-China Frontier, was published in 2016 by Harvard University Press. He's also the co-editor of The Origins of Qing Qingjiang, a set of historical sources on Turfan, published in 2016 by University of Tokyo Press. David, welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and, and we're excited to have you and, and to talk about um, this tra- this important translation of Kashkari's work. And this isn't the first Central Asian uh, Chagatai text that we've had featured a, a kind of translation on the uh, show. So we're definitely uh, excited to continue that trend. But mm. um, to begin um, with our conversation today, I'd like to ask you about your academic career, your interest in China and Central Asia, and how you came to this project, and how do you see this translation fitting into the into your broader research interests? So I came to Central Asia via China, I suppose. I was a, a major in Chinese studies as an undergraduate, and uh, sort of got to the end of that degree feeling like I really needed to go spend some time in China. I had a bit of an interest in Xinjiang by that time, but only a sort of a vague awareness of it. So I um, yeah, soon after graduating, I went off and actually lived for a year in uh, Urumqi and uh, spent time there studying Uyghur and, and Chinese. And that was what really got me hooked uh, on the place, uh, I suppose. And I, I also spent a bit of time across the border in um, the former Soviet Union at that point, which was ultimately really useful because that was um, that was where I ended up doing a lot of my research for my, um, for my PhD. Um, originally, my interests were you know, in, in quite early periods of Central Asian history, but they sort of kept kept moving forward and, um, you know, eventually connecting with some political interests in, in modern history and the Russian Revolution. And I was, it was really noticeable to me that, you know, a lot of the modern history of Xinjiang is very much tied up with what was going on across the border in the Soviet Union. Uh, and that, that was sort of not particularly well known, at least from the standpoint of... Um, the historiography of Xinjiang. Um, so that was sort of what led me to my my first book. But I, I also had a, an interest at that time in the, the period around the Qing conquest. In fact, I, I sort of dabbled in that period for a couple of years as a postgraduate student. Um, I guess you could say I'm interested in these transition periods in, in Central Asian history. Uh, and that's obviously uh, one of them. And to try to tell those stories from the, the local point of view, 
to the extent possible on the basis of local sources. Uh, at the time, I ultimately felt that I didn't really have enough to confidently bite off the 18th century as a, as a dissertation topic, but I did get acquainted with this particular text uh, at that time and, and spent some time with it. And it was, in a sense, the way I taught myself to read this earlier version of, of Uyghur, which we call Chagatai uh, in the 18th century, um, you know, really just by sitting with this text and trying to make sense of it and getting some help from um, some, um, some academics. Um, and um, so it always in the back of my mind to go back and, and try to make something of this and finish it off. It's only been the last couple of years, um, thanks in large part to a grant that I received from the uh, Australian government to work more on this, um, this period of um, before and after the Qing conquest and um, to, to complete and polish up this, this translation. That was one of the, the ambitions that I had for this um, I had for this grant. Now, I hope to continue working on that period um, with articles and, and a monograph and so on, but this is sort of a, a starting point, I suppose. And I, as someone who works in a field where, you know, there aren't that many scholars out there working, I, I've always had this sense that, you know, one of our responsibilities was to try to try to make some of these sources a bit more accessible to people as a way of building the field um, and, you know, not just leaving the source base you know, in the in the way that we've found it, but um, but 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 you know, processing this in, in some way, and so that was um, it's always been in the back of my mind that doing doing some you know translation work would be important for that. Yeah, and, and I'm curious. Um, you know, I, I have a question later in the interview about this, but I'm curious now because you said like while you were a student at Harvard, you uh. you you first started to grapple with the text. Where was yeah. the collection that you were working with at the time? Um, was this yeah. an original manuscript or? So it's interesting. I mean, the found one of the people who really laid the foundations for Central Asian studies at Harvard was, of course, uh, Joseph Fletcher, who um, died relatively young um, with a lot of unfinished work um, in train. And I think that one of the things that he had his eye on actually was some kind of study of this text because he... He built up a collection of Persian and Chagatai manuscripts from various European libraries um, that is now kept in the in the Widener Library. So I had access there to a body of um, I think four or five different versions of this manuscript in facsimile uh, already, which was extremely convenient. Uh, of course, saved me saves me the trip, um, and so that was. Um, that was really how I became aware of this uh, text and um, was able to get hold of it and, and read from different versions. I mean, one of the processes in the translation was actually beginning with some shorter versions of the text and then deciding that, you know, I really wanted to, you know, treat the long version and then trying to work out, well, which, which of these manuscripts should I be working from? And, um, Eventually, you know, I, I switched the, the text that I was using as my base uh, on a number of occasions. Um, and so I familiarized myself with a number of these different uh, manuscripts in the Fletcher collection. That's really interesting. And um, yeah, it, it just occurred to me, um, we haven't done a good job yet of, of introducing the text and, and the author. So could you tell us a little bit more about who Muhammad Sadiq Kashkari was? Um, what's the kind of cultural and historical mm. context in which he's writing the text? 
Mm. And, and, and what do we know about the author and his patrons? Well, unfortunately, we don't know that much about the author himself. We don't have any reliable secondary sources about his life. So we just have to look at uh, his works and trying to try to construct a story out of that. Um, now, this this text is actually often dated to the uh, the seventeen sixties, which um, uh, which is wrong. Um, actually, I've sort of come to the conclusion that really, you know, if we look at the people who, you know, basically on the basis of the people we know were patronizing this text and, and their political careers, I think we can confidently say that this was written in the early 1780s. Um, and that was probably one of his earliest texts, I mean, earliest works. So we don't know exactly when he, you know, he probably was someone born around the time of the Qing conquest. So he may not have had, you know, conscious memory of it himself, but he would have grown up with a lot of people, of course, who did, you know, this was sort of very recent history. Um, I've been able to tentatively trace a career for him stretching up until the 1820s. So it's about a 40 year uh, writing career. He was working for the, this new aristocracy that was created when the Qing came in to well, what became Xinjiang into the Tarim Basin. Um, and the various local families who often had a certain aristocratic background or a certain status to begin with, either as tracing their descent from, um, say, prominent Beg families from the, um, from the, the, the Mongol aristocracy originally, or possibly sort of significant um, uh, religious lineages, sheikhs, of particular shrines, um, what have you. Uh, certain of these families who were prominent collaborators with the Qing uh, invasion then were created as uh, aristocrats within the system and appointed to positions uh, in the south as governors of these, um, this or that oasis town, like Kashgar Yakan. Um, Kashgari wrote for two of these families. So the, the family that he's working for when he produces this text is a family from the town of Kucha. Uh, later on, he also does some work for a family from Tufan, the which was probably the sort of the the most powerful of these aristocratic families. This is actually um, this is really his main, um, let's say, original composition. Most of the rest of his work was translation, so he he translated sections of um, historical works such as the the Chronicle of Tabari. Um, probably not from the Arabic original, but probably from a Persian translation. Uh, he also translated the, um, the very important local historical work, the, um, um, the Tariqi Rashidi, um, Mirza Haidar's um, Persian history of the early um, part of the, the Chagatai dynasty in, um, uh, in the Tarim Basin. He did, um, he, he, re he produced a couple of manuals of ethics and, um, sort of popularizations of Islamic law, kind of what you need to know, you know, um, to be a good Muslim or to, you know, observe um, the precepts of Islamic law. Um, he's also credited with a work on a retelling the legend of a shrine in Turfan, although his authorship of that work is a little bit in question. Um, and then there are a couple of other works that, you know, are attributed to him, but uh, this is, Again, there's a, there's a bit of a question mark 
uh, around that kind of thing. But what we can say, I think, with some confidence is that he was really one of, um, if not the main, um, you know, productive Islamic literati of the early period of the Qing conquest, essentially of the, you know, the Qianlong Jiaqing um, periods. Um, and, um, you know, and his work does, you know, I think the, the, the remembrance of the saints, it, you know, it has a literary quality that connects it to earlier traditions of, of Chagatai literature, um, which is distinguishes it somewhat, I think, from the type of text that, that get written later on in the, the Qing period, where you, you get a sense of a little bit more of a rupture with that, um, that high Central Asian literary tradition. Interesting. Yeah. And in, I have, I have a question a little bit later where I want to, to dive a little bit more into kind of the literary aspect yep. of, of that text. So thanks for bringing that up. Um, but I'm curious about thinking about this text um, kind of in, as, as a historical source. And here I, I'm, I'm kind of curious what this text can tell us about this period of kind of late, um, you know, this period just before the Qing um, expansion and then also the, the Qing, you know, under the Qing expansion. Mm. Um, and how this, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the Hojas, like mm. who, who, who were these kind of different factions within the Tarim Basin at the time? Um, what does it tell us about the Qing conquests, divisions between those various groups, uh, like I just mentioned, and also the relations with uh, people of the Tarim Basin with uh, the Jungars and the mm. Kyrgyz um, as reflected in the text? Yeah, so those are, I mean, so those are some of the main themes of the um, the work. So essentially, this is our main source for this period in between the the, the demise of the, the the Chinggisid dynasty in the region, the Chagatayids, who are um, holding on to power up until the, the late 17th century. And then this, you know, this window of 50, 60 years prior to the arrival of the Qing dynasty. Um, and this is sometimes characterized as um, the Hoja period in, in historiography um, because it is the point where these, these members of these, um, well, on the one hand, Sufi brotherhoods, but brotherhoods in which the, the transmission of leadership has become hereditary. So in a sense, that's why I use the term dynasty, because the, the preferred model for transmission of the, the saintly charisma within these Sufi brotherhoods, which once upon a time was, you know, a sort of a master disciple process, that is in this period settled on a, a hereditary father-son um, transmission. Um, they, the, these families come to prominence as governors of these particular oases. Now, I should say... This designation, the Hoja period, is a little bit controversial. There's there's been a debate in both Chinese language literature and in uh, in Western scholarship as to the um, the reality here of of Hoja rule, because we have to keep in mind that we're dealing here with in, in the case of this text, a text that it sets out to glorify a particular section of this this Hoja family, and obviously you know, play up their significance in this, um, in this period. So we always have to try to, you know, look out for bits of historical evidence that sort of complicate that, that, that narrative. And I think when you do piece together 
um, the fragmentary evidence we have from other sources, it's clear that you know that the, the Hodges were actors in this period alongside a variety of other sections of the the local elite. Um, this is, I mean, the fact that we only have one significant source for this period, I think, does tell us something about the turbulence of this period. It, it really was a kind of a time of troubles um, in a way. And a lot of that had to do, I think, with the um, the encroachment of um, you know, nomadic military power on the sedentary um, society of the Tarim Basin. The, I mean, the two two key groups here, of course, the, the Jungar Mongols, um, but also the the Kyrgyz, and the Kyrgyz. I mean, the Jungar Mongols in the text are, on the one hand, and as they are in a lot of Central Asian literature, they are the sort of the enemy par excellence. They are the non-Muslim um, foe. At the same time, the Hodges that are at the centre of this story did, for certain periods, have a quite a stable mutually beneficial relationship with these um, Jungar Mongols. And you do get scenes of um, um, not necessarily intimacy, but, but you know, the, the sort of um, scenes of interaction that, that reflect um, that, um, that modus vivendi, uh, I suppose, that they, they had. You know, we have depictions here of the Jungar court in the Ili region with the Jungar ruler holding court with, um, you know, Muslim judges, uh, Muslim scholars on one side, and then Buddhist Mongol uh, judges on the other side. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, there is a differentiation in the text at certain points between those Jungars who have been, you know, working in the interests of the local Muslims and those who have not. Um, there's the Kyrgyz, of course, you know, ostensibly, you know, we would expect to be treated somewhat differently given their status as, as Muslims. But in many respects, you know, the invective directed towards the Kyrgyz is, is almost more extreme than anything um, about the, um, about the Jungars. And it is emphasized at various points that, you know, well, if it wasn't for the Jungars, you know, if we got rid of the Jungars, well, then the Kyrgyz would be in here the next minute. So they were, they were equally seen as a threat to the interests of this Muslim um, Muslim community. Um, the um, so I mean, the, there's there's still a lot of work to be done, I think, in terms of actually fleshing out the the political dynamics of this period and even just getting a sort of a basic chronology straight. And unfortunately, Kashgari doesn't provide everything that we would want in that respect, you know, in terms of um, dating events, that kind of thing, you know, you have to do a bit of um, triangulation to try to place um, these uh, events in, in time. But, you know, as more material is becoming available that we can, we can sort of, perform that triangulation with, you know, since I began translating this text, for example, the, the whole Manchu Qing archive on Xinjiang has become available. And a lot of that overlaps with this, with this period. We, and I use that in the, in my annotations, we, we can start to, um, I think we can start to sort of make up for some of the deficiencies of this text as a, as a historical source in its own right. Yeah, it's good. And, and I, you know, I know that 
this was a translation, so maybe you kind of put on the translator's cap a little bit and took off the historian's cap. But, um, you know, what I hear in your comments is, is this real need to understand this as a politically grounded text in itself, that we can't just accept everything in here as fact, sure. but actually that this is coming from a very specific perspective yeah. and like a pretty extreme one, you know, a moment of intense change, I would say. Mm. Um, so that's really interesting. And that kind of brings me to my next question, which is um, certainly you're not the first, I, I, I think you mentioned it in the text, but you're not the first uh, scholar to work with this text, but mm. it act- there's actually a history of scholars working with the text. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and how maybe other scholars have approached the text and how maybe your understanding of it has changed a little bit from from kind of the received wisdom. It's one of these texts that has been known about for really quite a long time, um, from the 1850s when the uh, the Kazakh in Russian service, um, Chokhan Valikhanov, went to Kashgar and he sort of got the basic narrative um, of this text. And then you had British visitors who acquired... Uh, some manuscripts of this and produced um, very precede forms of this text. Um, Martin Hartman, the German Orientalist, did a slightly uh, more extensive version of it. So it's, it's been around for quite a long time. And it's, it's one of these things that's sort of often referenced in relation by these, you know, these, these precy versions are often referenced in um, in the work, in, I mean, in terms of rethinking the, the the history of this period, one of the things that I was led to in reading this text was to to revise our understanding of the the nature of um, the divisions between Sufi brotherhoods in this period. One of the things that I noticed as I was reading this text, we have this conventional understanding of the the divisions here into a lineage descended from Hoja Afak, who is buried in Kashgar and a lineage descended from Hoja Isak Valley. Both of them are cousins, basically. Um, and Hoja Isak Valley went back to Samarkand and is buried there. Um, and so we have this notion of the, the Afakia versus the Isakia. That then gets mapped on to a later set of terminology, which is the White Mountain versus uh, Black Mountain Hojas. And, and that then, in um, Chinese discussions, becomes white hat versus black hat um, Hodges. What I realized as I was translating this text that these two groups of terminology are not in fact um, synonymous. There is a, in the text, there's there's a section of the community um, around the descendants of Hodja Afak who actually side with the Isakia um, in the face of this initial Qing invasion, which is, um, which is, which is um, supporting a, a, a rival faction of this um, this Afakia community. Now, that all sounds a little bit sort of detailed and nitty gritty, but w- what it does is actually allow us to see these categories as things that come into being actually at this particular point in time. So, Black Mountain. Is not something that is. It's not a term that we can just read back into the centuries previous. It's actually something that's sort of created by this um, reformation of political alliances in the, the process of the the Qing um, Qing conquest. Now, getting those categories straight then has allowed me to 
revisit some of the um, Qing period sources where they talk about this Black Mountain, White Mountain division uh, and, and give a new interpretation to some of those sources um, and get a better picture of how these, how these Sufi rivalries are actually continuing to play out into the, um, into the Qing period. Um, I suppose the other thing that I'm interested in in, this, in dealing with this text that other scholars haven't so much been interested in is, you know, what this actually tells us about the, the Qianlong period and the, the period in which this, you know, patrons were trying to essentially sort of establish a master narrative of the, the conquest period, um, you know, 20, 30 years after the fact, and trying to understand this text in the context of elite conflicts and rivalries, and as well as an ongoing issue of the relationship between nomadic and sedentary communities that was part of the history of Qing Xinjiang, you know, not, not just the, the period of, you know, preceding that. Yeah, and I think on top of that, um, as you kind of mentioned in the text, like, there's a, there's kind of a perception that we have that um, this was an extremely widespread text at the time. Um, you know, I know it's in your introduction, uh-huh. I forget um, exactly how that discussion goes, but there is plenty of evidence that this was a fairly widespread um, text. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and, and um, you know, we've talked a little bit about the kind of uh, historical um, insights that, that this text provides, but I'm curious too about um, if we're thinking about like religious history or like um, the, the, the kind of transmission of Sufism or developments in Sufism, does the text offer any insights into kind of the nature of Sufism um, in the Tarim Basin at this time, or maybe even its connection to um, Sufi networks beyond the Tarim Basin? There are different redactions of this text, and there's a, there's a long version that includes a very lengthy disquisition around the middle on the, the nature of the... Um, both the spiritual lineage that these Sufis have inherited and also the, um, uh, their, their genealogy as well. Because by this point, the Hodges were not simply claiming um, a, you know, a prestigious chain of spiritual transmission. They've inherited the, you know, the, the teachings of um, Baha'u'llah Naqshband, which are now being said to have, you know, continued a tradition from the days of the, the caliphs, but also, you know, claiming uh, Sayyid genealogy uh, as well, which is a, um, which is something that is associated with this, the shift of this, this Naqshbandi, um, this particular branch of the Naqshbandi into the, um, into the Tarim Basin. Um, but there are other versions of the text where that's actually left out, that's edited out. And so it seems to me that there was, there were readers for whom, some of this Sufi doctrinal stuff was really important um, and questions of, you know, how do you validate someone's claim to, to Sayyid identity and so on, that was important. And then others for whom, you know, this was becoming less salient because by the 19th century, this, this particular um, wing of Tarim Basin Sufism was losing out in a sense, largely thanks to the fact that a lot of them were wiped out by the, the conquest. Um, but, you know, others were moving in from, um, you know, new, new connections to, um, to India and um, elsewhere. Um, so the text is, it is, it's very hagiographic in parts, but over the course of the text, it actually 
becomes a much more worldly kind of narrative. Um, and the, the Hodges are joined by various members of the, the Beg elite as, as the key actors, and in some, some cases sort of overshadowing the Hodges as, uh, as the key actors. So I, I understand that as a reflection of the, the actual sort of social transition that is taking place and the, the tension here between a text that is, on the one hand, written to commemorate and glorify these Hodges, but is not necessarily being written from within the perspective of the, the Brotherhood, Right. It's actually being patronized by people who are, you know, very respectful and, you know, have a sort of social relationship to these Hodges, but not necessarily, you know, keen to perpetuate the idea of the, the Sufi Sheikh as the, you know, the, um, the holder of power in this, um, in this context, because, of course, you know, that, is, that runs against the established order in the, um, in the, Qing, uh, in the Qing period. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think in terms of sort of Sufi doctrine and, and that kind of thing, kind of understanding of Naqshbandi practice and so on, there's not, um, there's not very much of that kind of thing, um, in this text, but in terms of thinking about the, the image of the Sheikh and the nature of saintly power, I, I think that there is quite a lot to, um, to, to look at, um, from the depictions of these, um, these Hodges. Yeah, and I kind of want to um, bridge that conversation a little bit and talk about kind of some of the literary aspects of um, of the text because you talked about how in some ways it's hagiographic, but but then um, it kind of has this kind of world literature kind of narrative to it, especially as you move throughout the text. Um, and I want to talk about the original title, which is uh, Tazkirai Azizon, um, you know, and, and so literally like, you're, you're translating Tazkira, I guess, as remembrance or, or some kind of... Um, so could you talk a little bit about the decision to, like, the decision with the title, like, remember, in rem, sorry, um, in remembrance of the saints? Um, and what is a Tazkira? And is this is this a literary genre in itself? Or, um, you know, I, I think you've kind of indicated that this is some kind of hybrid in a way, but, but maybe it is building on a, a, a bigger tradition, right? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I think that I think that it is on anomalous in a certain sense when we talk about genre. But then I, I would, you know, I would just say that you know most texts actually do show signs of you know abnormality when we try to fit them into um, simple understandings of um, genres like hagiography or so on. I mean, Tazkere can mean, I mean, just to, to sort of focus in on the, the context of the 18th century in, in Xinjiang, I would say that that could connotes a sort of a fa- family of different types of texts that, um, you know, on the one hand, you have quite classical Tazkira texts, which are, you know, compilations of um, the lives of Sufi, Sufi saints, Tazkiratul Avliya, those types of texts that are you know, go back to the 12th um, century and, uh, you know, really established classics of, of Central Asian literature that, you you know, you don't have to necessarily adopt any particular position in relation to this, you know, that's just part of the, you know, the, the Islamic tradition 
writ large. Um, Tazketos also, you know, refers to particular texts that produced within circles of Sufi disciples, you know, to um, to promote particular sheikhs or particular, um, you know, particular interpretations of the Sufi path. Um, and they would sometimes be compilative, um, sometimes centered on particular individual saint, um, sometimes approaching a kind of a biography, but often constructed out of anecdotes that are not necessarily in chrono- chronological order. The, the key thing here is still, you know, the, the wisdom that is imparted by the, the teachings or the, you know, the actions of the, the saint in these, in these little stories. Um, then you have the, um, something quite prominent in the Tarim Basin is these various shrine texts that are coming into being sort of in a, in a, I think, a, sort of a dialectical way in the way that, you know, certain locations in the Tarim Basin become identified with particular stories. Um, and then those stories kind of take on written form. And then the written form of those stories kind of reinforces the narratives around these um, these locations, uh, so on. So various sort of semi-mythical saints in the region, often associated with the Islamization of the region, um, and these texts can be quite, let's say, sort of vernacular in style, um, you know, often coming in manuscripts that have clearly been kind of produced on the cheap, um, you know, copyists not being very sort of fastidious about their, you know, their handwriting and, and so on is quite a sort of a, um, a popular style of, um, style of text. So Kashgari sort of comes in to this and he's, you know, he's, he's using that term, Tazkira. And I mean, the first few sections of the work are him translating and adapting other hagiographies, you know, so that's how he sort of sets, sets the scene. You know, he's, he's taking from earlier Persian hagiographies of this, um, this Naqshbandi tradition, particularly the, you know, Mahdumi Yazam, this important, Samarkandi Sheikh and then Isak Valley. But it's not a it's not well, no, let me let me say this. Within the long version of the, the text, I already talked about the long and the short versions briefly, but within the long and the the long version itself, there's there is a distinction between certain texts that adopt quite a sectarian attitude, um, which is sort of quite sort of, you know. Uh, traditional in the sense of you know like you no know, we got the you know we got the spiritual charisma you know not those you know that rival lineage um but that i think is a subsequent adaptation of this text the, the text that i work from is actually quite ecumenical in its approach to these things so when it gets to this key sort of branching between the the lines of hoja afak and hoja isak valley it actually says well you know some people say that, you know, it went this way. Um, the, the, you know, the partisans of Hoja Afak say that, you know, they inherited it, you know, via this way. And then it says, well, look, you know, it's, you know, God only knows, but, you know, it's probably the case that, you know, both of these lineages have some share of this tradition, right? So in that sense, it's kind of trying to bridge a bit of the, the divide here, um, which, is, which is quite interesting. 
Um, and, and again, like I think reflects the fact that Kashgari himself, the author, is not part of a not part of a network that is actually sort of pushing on these sectarian disputes um, in a in a serious way. I mean, in a sense, I think what the the, the sort of the big elite in the Chenlong period would have wanted would actually be to sort of tone things down a bit, you know, um, and kind of put a wrap on some of the um, the the hostilities that had you know, presumably been seen as part of the, you know, what had led to this, you know, period of outside domination. Certainly, certainly, especially after this, as you said, like, in- incredibly turbulent period. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's definitely not hard to imagine. Mm. Um, yeah, thank you for that. And mm. um, no, I'd, I'd like to shift our conversation a little bit. Um, because, you know, this is in some ways, um, even for the channel, this is a bit of a unique text. As I said, we've had other translators um, working with Central Asian texts on the channel before, um, but it has been a while. So I wanted to kind of take the opportunity to talk with you a little bit about the uh, the process of translation. Um, and, and we've allid- alluded to this a little bit, but but I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit more about um, the various kind of versions of the text that uh. exist, where those are held. I know, if, if, I, if I remember correctly, there were texts in Germany, like copies of the uh-huh. text in Germany that you were able to access, uh-huh. maybe digitally. Uh-huh. Um, and I know that there was a mention of the, uh, the Al-Biruni um, archive uh-huh. or, or kind of manuscript collections. Um, I might be mispronouncing uh-huh. yep that institution, but in Tashkent, right? In, in Uzbekistan. So I'd be curious, like um, if you worked with different texts, like did you see differences between them? And, and if you could just like share a little bit of that experience, I think it's really a, a unique one that we don't, we don't hear about very often. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I originally, um, I mean, I, I, I do have a file of the transcription of the text with, you know, making notes of various different readings and, you know, different parts of the text and so on. And originally I was thinking of publishing that alongside the translation, but ultimately it just, it just seemed to me that it was, it was actually very difficult to come to any kind of conclusion about which of these texts was closer to the original. I sort of ended up drawing on some of these kind of circumstantial considerations about Kashgari and his patrons and so on to, you know, um, I mean, ultimately I ended up working with the text that is the, the most well represented of the long version of the, the text. Um, as I said, there's another version of the, the long text, which is, um, shows a more sort of partisan viewpoint. And then there's a shorter version, which is also goes by the title of Tazkide Hojagan, the, you know, remembrance of the, the Hodges. That's um, also the way it's known. You're right. It's There are texts, um, St. Petersburg, uh, the Yaring collection in Lund, in um, Staatsbibliothek in Berlin. There's um, some in Oxford um, at the Bodleian. There are, um, there's a couple in Tashkent. Um, and then there are texts uh, in China still. Um we, we know some are in collections in, in Xinjiang. <clears throat> there was actually a modern Uyghur version of this published a um, couple of decades ago uh, as well. Um, 
but it's also the case that there are texts you know, still in private hands. I've seen copies of this text uh, in private hands. Now, exactly how many of those texts are still out there, we don't know, and it may may ultimately be very hard for us to know because possession of those kinds of texts today is you know is, is becoming a, a dangerous thing for people there. So. Um, I do worry about you know the preservation of, of texts in, in Xinjiang at the um, at the moment. Um, so what I ended up doing in the translation was basically to just to try to note um, you know where there are significant additions or subtractions of, of meaningful information across the body of texts, right? So you're not going to get a guide to every slight difference between the text, but but where I thought, you know, people are adding new information or that this particular story is being told in a slightly different way, then um, I certainly did make note of that. And um, I was I was helped in that by the, um, uh, the recent uh, work of the... Um, uh, Japanese scholar Sawada Minoru, who's done a Japanese um, uh, translation of the short version, which is very well annotated as well. So when I, you know, when I need to sort of refer to divergences with the short version, I can sort of point people to um, his work as well. Um, one good thing is that in some of these collections, particularly Yaring and um, in Berlin as well, the, the text is starting to be digitized. And so we, we do actually have texts um, that are readily available um, in, in digital version. And ultimately, that was also a factor for me in thinking about you know, whether or not I wanted to try and actually publish the text or, or, or something like that. Um, yeah, in the end, I sort of decided that the, you know, the benefit of just doing a straight translation um, is you know to, to be able to place it in a you know in a publisher's series where it's going to be relatively affordable, um, it's going to um, you know it's going to be the kind of thing that you know undergraduates could potentially buy and um, and work with in courses and so on. Whereas you know something that has all the sort of um, you know the the sort of the heavy philological feel of a um, text edition as well as a translation, well that 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 makes it a quite a different different kind of thing. The the difficulty, of course, is that when you when you do that, you you know you don't you can't translate knowing that you know readers are going to be able to people who are in the know or a little bit you know unsure about your translation they're going to be able to refer to the original text. And ultimately, I didn't even have footnotes for the the translation, which meant that I really had to try to make it something that people could just read through without you know, without being able to sort of jump down to the bottom of page and get some clarification about what this what this particular term means or, or that kind of thing. Um, so that was a little bit daunting, um, I have to say. And, um, you know, I'm, I can't say for sure that I, you know, uh, I met that challenge in every um, every instance. Yeah, thank you. And and that kind of like actually brings me to my next question, which was kind of like, who, who, who you imagined the the audience of the text being and also um what kind of challenges i don't know was there any like unexpected challenges you face in in, in bringing this text into kind of a modern global english 
Um, especially one that, like you said, um, is something that you can imagine like undergraduate students reading and, and really um, getting something out of Central Asian history by reading the text. Like, I, I think this is a really cool uh, way to develop the project, but I'm curious, like, what kind of challenges are waiting for, for others of us who might, who might do a similar type of project? I mean, speaking sort of concretely about the translation, it's, it is the case that we're sort of at the mercy of the copyists um, in terms of what we are actually working from. And I think what has happened with the, with the Tazkira Azizan is that, well, Kashgari himself would have been very, I think, well-trained in Arabic and Persian and so on, you know, we have copyists who, you know, wouldn't necessarily have that kind of training. And so there are certain elements of the text, for example, the Persian poetry that tends to get corrupted quite quickly. And there are, you know, there are just these kinks in the text that I couldn't really, I couldn't really iron out. For example, there's a passage where the whole story turns on the interpretation of a particular line of Persian verse from a, an Indian poet. But the line in the text, I mean, all the versions of the text is not actually the same line as it is in the divan of this poet. And in, in the way that it's represented in, in Kashgari's text, it's very hard to make sense of the, the anecdote or the, the, the sort of the the puzzle of interpretation that they're playing with. Um, and, and ultimately there wasn't, you know, there wasn't a huge amount I could, I could do with that. Um, there are, you know, there are issues uh, like that. I mean, I have to say like the Persian poetry is, um, was a particular challenge, you know, even when I was confident in, you know, a reading, because this is the period of the influence of um, the poetry of India in sort of 16th, 17th, century poetry, this is known as the, the Sabki Hindi poetry, which is, you know, incredibly dense in its metaphors. Um, the, um, the, um, I think, I mean, there's, there's, there's always challenges about questions of um, terminology, how much do you want to translate, um, you know, key words about, you know, to do with sainthood and, um, you know, themes of holy war and that kind of thing, you know, do you, do you leave jihad as jihad, you know, with the sort of modern connotations that, that people might have of that, or do you translate that as um, something, same with Sharia, you know, modern readers, you know, they, they, they have a certain notion of Sharia and um, what that means, is it, is it best to just rely on that or should we, you know, should we use some some English um, term for for that. Th those were kinds of questions that I um, that I that I grappled with. Um, yeah, I think this is always a question of you know there is a certain effect of keeping certain words um, in the yeah. original, and you know, like Hoja is one that comes to mind yeah. that obviously um, is important for for your purposes. But yeah, I think those are just kind of some important things to grapple with. Um, yeah. And, and, and kind of building on that, I was curious. Um, I know you mentioned in the footnotes that, that there were some 
that that you did turn to some kind of um i guess like inspirations or or kind of guides to to dealing with aspects of arabic or persian literature that were popping up but in general was it you know thinking about the translation process again was there any kind of text that came before you that 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 served as kind of an ideal or that shaped the way that you approached the text or was it just kind of like jumping into water uh, feet first, you know? Well, I mean, there's lots of, there's lots of good translations out there. I mean, I, I had the, um, I had the privilege of working with Wheeler Thaxton uh, for a time. We, we, you know, we sat down at a couple of points with a few passages um, from this text. And um, that was, um, I mean, his work has, you know, always, uh, always influenced me. There's, you know, there are, there were really sort of, sort of stunning, you know, renditions of, um, you know, Persian Persian poetry out there. You know, Dick Davis and, and those kind of people that I try to, I try to look at um, anything that they they do. And I, I, you know, I feel very inadequate, you know, not having the sort of poetic skills in English to try to um, do more of the um, of that 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 type of um, that type of translation. But no, I think it was. I think it was really, I think the key was trying to think about, to go back to the sort of the question of genre, try to think about what, you know, how to characterize what I was reading. I mean, the, the term hagiography does a, does a lot of work, but, you know, towards the end, I mean, it's, there is a kind of an epic style to the second half as well. Um, Kashgari is, using phrases that um you know i we can see the sort of the there, there are certain linguistic um parallels between the, the language he's using and the language that he's using in the translations of those uh those histories for example that i i mentioned and um he you know he talks about the sections as dostan which is, you know, that's not hagiographic terminology. That is, um, you know, that's much more, you know, from the um, the epic tradition. Um, there's, you know, I, I mean, I, I like the term martyrology as well. Um, there's a there's just this kind of pervading sense of doom throughout the text, and people are often often sort of predicting their impending um, demise, and that obviously specifically as a genre that you know has a long history as as well i think i mean one thing i hope is that people with a better grasp of some of these traditions of islamic religious literature going all the way back um might be able to come along and look at look at a text like this now now that we have the sort of the whole and um offer you know, offer offer interpretations on that um, from that sort of vantage point, um, because it was something that um, I was often found myself wondering. You know, the you know the the various um, the various stories around you know the flight of these you know these saintly <clears throat> figures from the enemy and and so on. I mean, there is it's a long tradition of that that kind of thing. And in fact, Kashgari does reference. Um, Muhammad's flight from Mecca at a certain point um, at the end uh, as well. But I, I would imagine that there's a lot more that could be said about um, that, that side of the text as well. 
Yeah, David, um, I, you know, we're, we're nearing the end of time here, but I wanted to kind of come back to another um, comment you made earlier when you were talking about um, these texts kind of existing in private hands. And, and also um, one, one aspect of your work that I don't think you've talked about too much yet, which is um, that you began, you, you began your study of uh, Uyghur or Chagatai um, in Xinjiang, and and you know I can't help but but br- bring us to the conversation about what's happening in Xinjiang today, and specifically, what does it mean to translate a text like this um, at a time when, as you say in your uh, acknowledgments, many Uyghur scholars and translators have vanished or are vanishing in in internment camps in Xinjiang. Um, so yeah, just a couple of words about that. Yeah, well, it's a it's a heavy, uh, heavy question. I obviously, you know, I wasn't thinking along these lines when I when I sort of first set out in to work on this text in um, you know fifteen odd years ago. Although even then, I mean, there was some sense that this was a you know a neglected part of the Islamic world, and that you know, I mean, I I, I certainly always felt that you know Uyghur colleagues appreciated the fact that people were, you know, taking some interest in this. And I certainly don't want to overstate the contribution that, that work like this can, can make in a, you know, in a situation like we are in today. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do think that there is this, you know, this huge interest out there now in um, the, you know, the identity, the culture, the history of the, you know the, the the Muslim peoples of um, this region, and there's actually very little for the people to sort of um, do with that interest in an intellectual sense. You know, there's there's not a huge amount in translation, and if people want to pick up something that's written by someone from the region, um, there's still not a you know not a great deal that we can point people to. Now, I mean, I think that interest would probably best be served by translating some of the the modern literature uh, as well. But you know. Um, Nonetheless, you know, I, I I do think that it's, you know, I, I was I was sort of, I was quite appreciative that Columbia University Press, you know, took interest in this project and were, you know, happy to slot this into a, a body of work that is, you know, identified as you know classics of Asian literature and so on. Because I think, you know, in the Central Asian context, this this really does deserve to be considered um, as a, a as a classic, and I. I mean, as I, I talked about the manuscripts, I mean, I do very much worry about the, the fate of uh, Islamic studies inside China today um, and the, you know, the ability for people to study and engage with these, these kinds of texts. I, I won't say that it's a completely dead tradition. I mean, I think that in some parts of China, this, this is still sort of surviving, but I think there's a huge amount of pressure now on... Um, really any effort to to maintain and elaborate a a Uyghur cultural and intellectual tradition that has a connection to this um, this this tradition of uh, Islamic um, Islamic literature um, that is that is I think endangered and so um, you know and I, I have various colleagues that have helped me out along the way um, in Xinjiang now who have been missing for 
uh, two to three years. And, um, you know, I very much hope it's not the case, but, you know, we know now that China is transitioning away from this sort of um, uh, so-called re-education camp internment, but putting a lot of people in um, away in lengthy prison sentences. And I, you know, I really, I really hope that's not the case. And I, and I think that whatever else we might be doing, you know, in, in response to this situation, you know, that the academy needs to remember that we have colleagues, um, you know, facing that really dire plight um, in China at the moment. And um, you yeah, remember that and call attention to it um, in, in, whatever, in whatever way we can. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, and, and as we're um, kind of ending the conversation, um, you know, you mentioned earlier in, in when you were talking about the translation that this is perhaps a start of um, more historical scholarly work. So, so back to doing research on this period of, of the Qing conquest. So I'm curious, do you have any other um, projects in the work that we should uh, look out for? Well, I mean, maybe not something to look out for immediately, but as I said, I, I have been um, working on this period, not just as a translator, but, um, you know, I've been digging into the Qing sources. I've been scrounging around for um, manuscript texts that um, can help to flesh out the picture of um, sort of the the wider picture of the, you know, Tyron Basin Sufism in this period, its relationship to um, politics and, and the state. And um, it's led me in, in some interesting directions. I have some um, unfinished work at the moment on one particular branch of this family who ended up in Beijing, for example, as um, uh, members of the Qing aristocracy, but, but living in Beijing, uh, who were nonetheless continuing to write their own Sufi hagiographies and, you know, try to maintain this, this sense of, you know, being inheritors of this, this Naqshbandi tradition um, while living, you know, in the hutongs of Beijing. And that, you know, that, that to me is a, um, a, well, I think it's an interesting sort of addition to our understanding of the relationship between the Qing Empire and, and Islam. Um, in this period, as I said, I'm also still sort of trying to explore some of the the continuation of these um, these Sufi networks in the post-conquest period. I mean, despite the fact that a lot of you know they were largely decapitated in that process, um, there were groups that went back to kind of master-disciple forms of transition and so on. And we can we can sort of tell a bit of a story about them into the uh, into the 19th century. So, I mean, really, what I would like eventually is to zoom out and be able to um, probably write some kind of monograph on the, you know, the, the sort of the story of Sufism and, and the state from sort of 17th through to 19th, possibly even even 20th centuries. Um, but there's a little bit of way to, to go um, on that. Um, still, I've also been, you know, writing quite a bit on contemporary Australia-China politics um, of late. So I have a book coming out um, on the whole Australia-China debate, and that has um, taken me away from some of this work uh, a little bit, although it does have a it does have a whole chapter on the discussion around Xinjiang um, in it as well. So, um, 
Great. So yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll look out for both <laughs> one sooner and one a bit later. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so now, you know, we've been talking for the last hour about you and your work, but I have a question for you, which is, um, um, yeah. Could you share something that maybe you've read of someone else's work, um, whether it's in, in Central Asian studies or I don't know, something else um, that, that you found interesting and, and that readers might um, enjoy? Well, I guess if, you know, if you've got to the end of this interview, you, you, you know, you probably do have an interest in uh, 18th century Central Asia. And um, I, I feel like we are, you know, we're at a point now where there's, I mean, there's always a bit of a dialogue going on between people who work on Western Turkestan, people who work on Eastern Turkestan and, you know, across the other side of the border in, in Western Turkestan, you know, the, the scholarship is a bit richer. Um, there's a bit more going on, but I think that I think that some of the work that's being done there um, could be extended in interesting ways into um, into Xinjiang. I mean, I'm I'm thinking about Scott Levy's recent Bukharan crisis, which I thought was a really stimulating um, stimulating discussion of that period, and has um, you know could could I think serve as a platform for <clears throat> a range of interesting discussions about um, Xinjiang and um, the Qing conquest. I mean, Jeff Eden's book on slavery is also, I think, um, something that um, we should be reading. Um, it's, I mean, I haven't mentioned it, but one of the impacts of, one of the consequences of this period of Junga Mongol domination was a whole lot of slavery, um, enslavement of Muslims by Mongols and enslavement of Mongols by Muslims. I mean, of course, the Kalmyks, you know, were slaves throughout the rest of Central Asia, but, um, you know, there was, um, um, there was a lot of, um, a lot of back and forth between these communities in, uh, in the, the Tarim Basin. Um, the final thing that I, you know, I, I hope he's okay with me sort of mentioning this because it is it is publicly available. But amazingly, we now have really the first kind of study of the the Junga state, the Junga Mongol state, from a kind of from a you know from an internal point of view. That is to say, one that really begins with the process of Junga Mongol state building and then kind of looking outward from that um, perspective. This is um Hosong Shim's dissertation, which was recently completed at uh, Indiana University. And this is something that I think, you know, fills a gap. It will fill a gap, certainly, when it becomes um, published as a, uh, as a monograph. Um, and it's, it's kind of just the kind of thing that I've been looking for as a historian, essentially, of Islamic Central Asia um, and the Tyrone Basin in particular, to, you know, now be able to kind of... Um, think about these societies um, as, you know, um, uh, you know, not, not simply as places that sort of get squeezed between the Qing and, and Russian empires, um, but as, you know, places that had a political economy and had elites with their political strategies and so on. Um, and were, and this, this, this sort of contact zone between the, the, the steppe and Islamic Central Asia between the sort of the Mongol and Muslim worlds is, one of these important interactions that, that has just never been really well, um, well studied and, um, and understood. And 
because of course we have to remember, you know, when the Qing step into Central Asia in the 18th century, they're not entering this space of pristine, you know, Islamic rule, um, you know, never before, you know, defiled by non-Muslim domination. I mean, no, this has been a space of interaction between non-Muslim rulers and um, these Muslim city-states for, for a long time prior to that point. And I think having a clearer picture of that can ultimately um, inform our understanding of, you know, Qing imperialism in that period, in that space as well. Absolutely. And yeah, so thank you for those recommendations. And, um, you know, for listeners, we did actually feature this book by Scott Levi uh, here on the channel. So always also please check that out if you're interested. And um, David, thanks again for uh, coming and talking about the translation. Um, we'll have some info in, in the uh, description about where the, where listeners can get that book. So thanks again. Thanks, Nick. I enjoyed it.